At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Thacker, and I am uh, privileged and honored today to be able to share the word with you. Um, And it is a great chapter. Uh, What does it feel like when you go through extended times of difficulty? What does it feel like? It feels awful. We might be able to handle a short period of time of illness, maybe a short job difficulty, maybe some tension in our home. But what happens if it's not just an isolated or a temporary situation? The pain or difficulties just keep on coming. Maybe it's a series of struggles with life. Maybe it's uh, disease or illness or life-threatening scenarios that last not just a few days, not a few weeks, not even a month or so, but for years. Maybe it's an abusive relationship. Maybe it's someone by no fault of their own who's going through a difficult time over an extended period of time. Maybe it's from your boss, from your spouse, someone at work, someone you know who has you in their crosshairs. And it seems like they won't let up. Time after time, taking every opportunity to attack your character, make your life or job a little bit harder, verbally attacking you, slandering your character to others for no apparent reason or for reasons that don't make any sense to you. How are we to faithfully deal with those life-draining, long-term difficulties or with a person who intentionally makes it their mission to make you miserable? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that for a long period of time, but it feels lonely. There's loneliness involved. There's feelings of helplessness, frustration, discouragement, The silence is almost deafening, if you will. And the abandonment that you feel feeds that notion that maybe God is not really there and that he really doesn't care after all. You may even feel that there's no help coming and life is not going to get any better. We often find these situations to be pretty difficult, overwhelming, in fact. And you come to a point where you're tempted to snap, and you either verbally or maybe even physically attack that person or persons that's making your life difficult. For those who are going through a time like that, And we could walk up and down the aisles today and make our list and go through just about every person here today and you'd be struggling with something. Maybe it's something you haven't told anybody about. But it's something that's nagging you or something that is chasing you. There's good news for us today. There's good news for you today. There's good news for me today. Because when we look in 1 Samuel 26, there's good news. There's hope for us. And as David is being chased and hunted again, 
by Saul is a different David this time. No, it's the same person, but it's a different David. And that we will find him to be a different man than he was in chapter 24 when a similar situation came to be. And we will have God speak to us today, his precious bride, the church, and to us as his children, just from the pages of the early portion of Israel's beloved history. If you have your Bible today, I hope that you'll open with me to 1 Samuel 26 and read with me. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jesimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jesimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul, <clears throat> Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, where with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment, while the army was encamped around him. Oh, these Ziphites, aren't they great guys? They've already, in chapter 23, tipped Saul off another time previously to Saul's whereabouts. And Saul, again, brings out 3,000 of his best and most skilled troops into the wilderness to find, capture, and kill David. David has been a fugitive for 10 chapters or more. And his group of 600 hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, east of Jessamon. The word Jessamon actually means wasteland or wilderness. So our scene today is east of the wilderness. He's in the wasteland of the wilderness about as far away from his home country as he can be and still be within the borders of his home country. You ever felt that way? Been chased almost to your end? You've gone as far as you can go. You've been chased and harassed about as far as you can go. And still, it comes after you. In the wilderness, in the wasteland, David is a hunted man, and so he sends out troops to make sure that what he's heard was really true. David himself then comes to a strategic position on a hill where he can see for himself, and he finds Saul lying at the center of the encampment encircled by 3,000 soldiers. And he's asleep. He feels safe. He's completely surrounded by his troops, by his bodyguards. That's the scene as we continue in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, and his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No one saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. 
for they were asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. David sees the encampment with King Saul sleeping right there in the center. He asks these two men, who will go down with me into the camp? And Abishai is the son of one of David's sisters whose name was Zeruiah. So to Abishai, David is Uncle David. And he is fired up. He is excited. He wants to, to demonstrate, and, and he's eager to impress his uncle with his bravery, with his skills. They make their way down into the camp, and Abishai says, Here's Saul asleep before you. God has given him into your hand. Let me end this once and for all. Let me end this suffering that we're going through. Let me end this exile that we're experiencing. Let me end all of our suffering. Well, we have seen David in a similar situation in a couple of chapters prior in chapter 24. But there's something different about David now. His response is different. It has a different uh, tone to it. David is different. David has grown in his understanding and appreciation of the sovereignty and provision and timing of God. They come into the camp and Saul and they find Saul's spear stuck into the ground at his head and next to him a water jar for the use of the king. Abishai is ready to kill King Saul. He sees it as a God-given opportunity to eliminate King Saul and end their suffering. And the lesson that David seems to have learned is that just because God has opened an opportunity for a certain course of action, it does not make that course of action right. The opportunity was convenient and available, but not right. David and Amishai still needed to be governed by the moral principles God had laid down in his word. And David, just like at the cave at Engedi, will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. If this was the latest box office smash, and we were all sitting in the theater, and we see the two heroines going into the camp of the enemy, we'd be sitting on the edge of our seats because we'd be saying, oh man, the good guy's going to get it and the bad guy's going to get his. And we'd be disappointed. Because David will not reach out to attack his enemy. He will not reach out to attack the Lord's anointed because he respects that position. He respects that king and he respects the Lord who put him there. The bad guy is about to get his. And we might cheer with a group of people in the theater when that happens, but we'd also be able to justify that action if he did it. Or at the very least, let Abishai do it. I mean, if you don't want... Blood on your hands, David, fine. Be the good guy. Let Abishai do it for you. But he won't let him stick it to the man. That's literally what he was wanting to do. He was wanting to stick it to the man. But David would not allow him. It's not what happens. David does not take Saul's life and forbids Abishai from taking the spear and putting it in Saul's head as he sleeps. He understands, David understands the principle that he cannot fulfill God's plan in a way that is against God's word and instructions. David's action or lack of action demonstrates that he's grown in his patience, that he's grown in his trusts of the Lord with his future. He has grown because of what has happened in chapter 25. If you remember last week, David was enraged by Nabal's slight against him and against his slight of his men and would not share with him his goods. And he was so enraged that he was about to commit mass murder. 
and wipe out every part of Nabal's servants and family. Yet instead of taking his own vengeance, David listened to Abigail, Nabal's wife. And as a result, David did not allow his vengeance to control him. He didn't snap in the midst of difficulties. He heard truth. He saw how God took care of Nabal. Because ten days later, after Nabal slights David, Nabal's dead. God kills him with, through a heart attack or a stroke of some kind. His heart just fails and he's dead. I think David learned from that. He refuses to take the life of the one who lays before him. He goes on to say that Saul will die at some point, and he uses kind of his imagination there. He doesn't know how God's going to take him, but he's, he knows he's not going to do it. He says the Lord might take him, or he might die of old age, or he might go down into battle and die in battle, but I am not going to do it. He says, I'm going to trust God. David tells Abishai that it would be wrong for them to kill Saul because he is Lord's, the Lord's anointed king. Despite all that Saul has done, despite the opportunity that is literally laying before him, David chooses to obey rather than to fulfill his own destiny in his own way. A way that's contrary to God's ways. David is expressing his trust in God's plan regardless of how long that plan comes, it takes for that plan to come to pass. Oswald Chambers said this, he said, The real measure of spiritual maturity is not our excitement and ecstasy in worship, but in our obedience. In the midst of terrible circumstances, exiled, hunted, spear thrown at him to kill him numerous times, kidnappers sent after him, being slighted by Nabal, living in this awful wilderness for years, scrapping out for life, and having his wife taken and given to someone else, David refuses to take the life of the one who was responsible for all of that and instead takes his life and places his own life and his destiny in the hands of God. A sovereign God. David is growing in his trust in God's timing and plan for his life. He is saying to Abishai and to us that in spite of all that has happened to him, and if you're taking notes, here comes some. God has a plan. God's plan is more important than mine. In spite of where you are, in spite of every difficulty through which you are going right now, God's plan is more important than your plan, even your plan of escape. Even though it's opportunistic, even though it's available, even though it would end your suffering, wait on God to deliver you. Because God's plan is more important than mine. God stands with you in the storms of life and asks you to trust Him that the timing of His plan is perfect. Now, oftentimes, He doesn't find a willing participant. But He's asking you. He's asking me. Are you willing to trust me? Because his plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. But there's more. There's more for us to learn here about God's sovereignty. You may not even see how much the power of God is at work in your situation. You may not even see it. How was it that Abner and Abishai were able to walk right into the camp? Not just walk to the edge of the camp and say, Hey, I can't get me. 
No, they went through 3,000 troops to the center of the camp and stood over Saul, the most precious person in the camp. He was the king. How are they able to do that? God was at work behind the scenes in ways that David and Abishai did not see. Because God had caused a deep sleep to fall over those troops, over Saul, so that they were able to walk in there undetected, have a theological conversation, (laughs) discuss what they were going to do with this guy, take his spear and a water jar, and walk back out undetected. How'd they do that? It doesn't even say that that David even thought about that. But God brought a deep sleep over those people, protecting David and Abishai. (laughs) David could not see God acting behind the scenes, and most of the time, neither do we. But be assured, he knows where you are. He's acting behind the scenes, protecting you. Imagine what that would be like if he didn't. David's a sitting duck. About one spear, try 3,000. And somebody's going to hit him. Saul may not have been able to hit him. Somebody put him. But God's hand is over David. He's uh, the anointed king, and God protects him and Abishai into the camp, steals the spear and the jar, and they're out. Nobody knows it. God's protection may not be seen, but it's very real. We cannot forget, even if we cannot see him at work, that God is intimately involved in our situation. Does this happen anywhere else in Scripture? Does God show up like this in power? Yes. Look at 2 Kings chapter 6. We see the king of Syria hunting and finding where Elisha the prophet was, was staying. He sent horses and chariots and a great army by night to surround the city of Dothan. And in chapter 6 of 2 Kings it says, It was told the king, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And verse 15 continues, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But at this point, the servant doesn't see a thing. He just sees Elisha, and he sees those horses and chariots and army surrounding them. And Elisha does something really cool. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God's provision and protection may not be able to be seen, but is more real than anything you've ever seen. Even during intense difficulty and trials, we are assured over and over of God's constant aid and protection. Even when the enemy is all around us, even when you are overwhelmed by difficulties, even when those difficulties are over months and years, God's protection is more real than those difficulties. David refused to take the kingdom in his own power in a way that would not glorify God. He demonstrated that he was willing to wait for God to give him the kingdom in God's own perfect timing. David had hidden himself. He had hidden himself in God and was willing for God and for God's timing for his deliverance. Look in Psalm 34, a psalm that was probably written during this 
these times of being chased by Saul. It says in verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 34, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David was taking refuge under the wings of his God. How often are we tempted to take what is ours instead of waiting on God's timing? I'm sure that Abishai was stunned at how, God, how David could pass up such a gift-wrapped opportunity to eliminate Saul. Again, he only took his spear and his water jar. Verse 13 continues in 1 Samuel 26. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David and Abishai, Abishai leave Saul's camp with a spear and water jar and get a safe distance away. He has symbolically taken Saul's life without harming one hair on his head. But now we continue to see the results of David's spiritual growth. As a result of his growth, and by handling these trials in obedience, we see David's life speak with increased spiritual authority among the people. In earlier chapters, while learning these lessons, these lessons were mostly kept to himself. But if you're taking notes, trusting God in your trials deepens your faith, better equipping you to serve and lead. Trusting God in your trials deepens your faith, equipping, equipping you to serve and to lead. Now he is a deeper, more mature leader, better equipped to lead God's people. He was unwilling to take an honorable position in a dishonorable way. Not only has David been anointed of king, as king, the next king of Israel, he is acting like one as well. He is acting with the spiritual authority of a king. Parents as well have an anointing and have been given authority within their home. However, our children will go their own way if they never see us actively applying the truth of God's word to our own lives and to the life of our family. They may be taught in church to pray. They may be taught in church to pray about things in their lives, but if they never see their parents actively applying God's word or see them praying or hear them talking about how God is working within the family, children begin to think on their own that this Christian walk is all about the show. If it doesn't really apply to my real life here today, if I don't hear my dad or my mom talking about what God is doing in a real and authentic way, then maybe it's all just a big show. David had spiritual authority among the people 
because they had seen him live on a higher spiritual plane in the midst of his difficulties. Instead of taking the easy way to the throne, David decided to trust God with the timing of his destiny. Instead of striking against Nabal, he chose to wait. Instead of ending his suffering, he chose to trust God and wait. And as a result, when he got back to those 600 and even to those 3,000 men who heard him speak, his spiritual, the spiritual weight of his words was unbelievable because he spoke with authority. Parents, do your children see you live on a higher spiritual plane? Do they hear you speak of what God is doing in your life in a real and authentic way? Not just in a Sunday school cliche kind of way? Do they hear you talk about how He is changing your life in the midst of difficulties? Do they hear the pain in your voice when you talk about it? And yet you, they see you trust God? Do they see that? Do they hear those words about how God has taught you, how He is changing you, how He is real and making a difference in your life? If not, if that's not taking place, you may be sending a mixed message to your children. And your life may not be speaking with the spiritual authority that your parental anointing calls for. Hear this, fathers. Your leadership of your children in this area is crucial. You are the moral and spiritual leader of your home. Children will get a warped understanding of who God is if you are not walking out in front of your children. You're calling as an authentic spiritual leader in your home with grace, devotion, and obedience. Take the steps necessary. Take the time necessary to communicate to your children, to your wife, where you are and how God is changing you and changing your heart. Your kids need to see that. They need to hear that. <clears throat> because in those moments, God becomes very real to them because they see Him become very real to you. Through his growth in grace and obedience in difficulties, David has grown in his spiritual usefulness for the kingdom of God. He takes the opportunity to confront Abner for neglecting his duty as the bodyguard of King Saul and tells him that what he's done is a capital offense, punishable by death. Not only this, but he appeals to Saul he confronts and appeals to Saul about why he continues to pursue him. David has taken the spear of Saul, the symbol of his kingdom, the symbol of his power. David symbolically removes the power from his enemy. The very weapon that has been so often used against him and was a symbol of Saul's kingship, the symbol of his power, has been taken from him just as the, king, the kingdom itself will be taken in the very near future. David appeals to Saul to repent. He says, what have I done? David says, what evil is on my hands? He continues by asking Saul about the origin of his desires to eliminate him. Was God telling him to pursue David? Or was his desire being stirred up by men? David says, that if this is from God, then he wanted to make an offering for forgiveness. He, was, he said David is just demonstrating increasing maturity and humility. He says, if this is God's doing, if all of this misery is God's doing, I, and I've wronged somebody, then I want to make it right. If I'm guilty before the Lord, I want to make it right. But if you're being stirred up by men, be, they should be cursed. Now, I had to be careful here. We must be careful here because difficulties, we see both sides. Because there are folks here today, possibly on both sides of 
difficult situations. There may be folks who are undergoing discipline for their sinful behavior. And God's trying to get through to you through your difficulties. He's trying to break through all of the life and get to your heart to speak to you. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. If that is the case in your life today, I think we should at least be willing to ask that question when we have difficulties. We at least need to be honest before God and say, Is this because of something I'm doing? Is there a blind spot in my life? Am I not responding to your grace? Am I not walking the way I should walk? Just be willing to ask that question. And then based on the answer, deal with whatever the Spirit of God shows you. And repent. But there's the other side. He may also be using these trials to purify you and to draw you closer to Himself. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're taking notes, God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves to show the world that the one who has faith in Jesus has an anchor for their soul that holds through any storm. He won't allow us to be comfortable and stay the same. I can say that because I've been walking with God for a while. And I used to look at those old grumpy deacons in our church. (laughs) And I'd wonder, where is the joy of the Lord in those guys? I think they got stuck. I think they stopped growing. I think they reached a point in life where they said, I've had enough. I've served my time. I've done what I'm supposed to do. My kids are out of the house. I don't need to grow anymore. And God says, no. He says, no. There's more. It's deeper than that. It's like saying you've been to the deepest parts of the ocean by standing on the beach. It's not so. There's always more. And God's not going to be content to leave you where you are. And sometimes difficulties help get us off the dime. That steadfastness that we just spoke of speaks volumes of truth to the world. As you go through your trials in obedience and in humility, that that gives you a spiritual platform that tells the world that even in the wilderness, I know that God is faithful and that His way is truth, and that His timing is right. That platform is given to you by the people around you who have watched you go through life's trials and seen God be faithful to you and you be faithful to Him in the midst of those difficulties. This gives you a hearing in their lives out of the respect they have for you because you've come through experiences that are tough. And they've seen your life up close and personal. And it gives you spiritual authority in their lives. God is saying that if this is from God, let me honor him who has an appropriate, let me honor him with an appropriate sacrifice in the temple of his presence. David continues saying that as things stand right now, and he stands on a hill in the wilderness, by the way, I can't go to the temple because I'm, If you haven't noticed all, I'm a hunted man. I'm a fugitive. I haven't been to the temple in years. I long for the presence of God. I long to worship with my people. I long to be in the temple. But I'm a fugitive. I've been cast out. And basically they said, look, you go serve other gods. You're not allowed to come worship the God of Israel. 
you can't come in here anymore. You can't worship in the presence of a holy God. He says, King Saul, you've come out after someone who is insignificant as far as threats to your kingdom are concerned. And he's proved that over and over by not taking Saul's life. If you're taking notes, going faithfully through trials builds steadfast character and gives you spiritual authority as one who God has brought through life's valleys. He'll carry you through the valleys and give you a, a platform to share his faithfulness. We continue in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul is convicted by David's words, but David has uh, he's seen this act before. He knows that sorry doesn't mean I'm sorry. It doesn't mean I repent. It just means I don't feel bad about that. I'm not willing to do anything about it, though. He understands that Saul may be sorry, but he's not repentant. Otherwise, he wouldn't even be where he is right now. He wouldn't be again out in the wilderness being chased by 3,000 soldiers and Saul. Yet, here we are. Just a quick word about forgiving those who are involved in giving you difficult times over a long period of time. Uh, there's a difference between forgiving someone and entrusting yourself to them again. David here has forgiven Saul. That's evident because he didn't kill him. If you're still enraged and still carrying the anger, you're going to let it fly when you get a chance. But David, by God's grace and by God's discipleship, has brought him to a point of forgiveness. David has forgiven Saul, but he's still taking the spear. <laughs> I still got the spear over here, and you're not going to use it on me. And he's speaking to him from a great distance because I'm sure that wasn't the only spear in that crowd of 3,000 people. He is smart enough to understand that he's dealing with someone who has been twisted by the deceitfulness of selfishness and sin and is not to be trusted. Just because you forgive someone, you don't have to entrust yourself to them again. He has forgiven him and does not want any harm to befall him. He's refused, in fact, to bring harm to him when the opportunity presented itself. But he will also not allow himself to be put in a situation where he can be harmed again. There's a difference between forgiving someone who's continually sought to hurt you and placing yourself back into their trust. We are called to forgive people, yes. That releases us from the bondage of bitterness and does not allow bitterness to grow in our hearts. But we're not called to give them free reign in our lives again after they have proven to be someone that cannot be trusted. You can be free of the pain, but be wise enough not to go back into it. David does not even respond to Saul's confession. He knows it's not real anyway. 
But he says, here's the spear. Have one of your young men come and get it. And he gives Saul the Old Testament version of the principle of sowing and reaping from Galatians 6, 7, which says, the Lord rewards every man according to his righteousness and faithfulness. He said that in righteousness, he did not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He was faithful and obedient to honor the position of king over Israel. David also declared that he knew his life was important. God had a plan for his life, and through it all, God would deliver him from all his tribulations. David is behaving with the character of a true king, behaving with righteousness and faithfulness. Now, if you've read ahead, you'll know that this is the last time that David and Saul speak. He'll not come face to face with Saul again. The last words that David hears from Saul ring out to us and probably rang in David's heart years after he walked away from this encounter. Here's David, still in exile, yet even the one who has tried to kill him sees who David really is. Sometimes, even in the midst of difficulty, God sends a word of encouragement from the strangest of places. Saul says, Blessed are you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And they go to their merry ways. Your life is precious. It's important. And through it all, God will deliver you from your tribulations. You will do many things, and you will succeed in them. You will do many things, and will succeed in them as well. As God leads, as He provides, as He delivers, trusting in Jesus' name, His timing, His way, and in His plan. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you take a step back from chapter 26 and see some, something pretty remarkable, you see an anointed king cast out as worthless by his own people, who wanders from place to place with no place to lay his head, no place to call home. He comes into the enemy camp and robs the strong man of his goods, his spear. This sounds a lot like another anointed king, our King Jesus. Our King Jesus endured many hardships, lived much of his life on the run, came into the enemy territory, disarmed him, established himself as the one who has true spiritual authority and established an everlasting salvation for us, his people. Amen. This is just a little glimpse of the victory that Jesus has. David's not the Messiah, but he points us to the one who is. He gives us a snapshot of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do when he comes to the earth. He has won our victory. If you're in a nasty, extended trial, you're in the midst of walking in your own wilderness wasteland, where you think God has forgotten you, and where you have been pursued by wave after wave of abuse, wave after wave of trials, difficulties, Know that our Savior endured all these things and more. So hear the Lord today. For us to grow through or survive our wilderness, let me just give you two quick suggestions and I'm out of your hair. If you're taking notes, practice the presence of God and walk in intimacy with Him. David, in his discussion with Saul, uses the word Lord five different times times. The Lord was ever present in David's thoughts. We must focus our lives 
as well on the Lord and look to Him throughout our day and see Him in every part of our day. To trust God's plan, you have to trust God. He has to become real and present and welcomed into your life. Not just as a part of your life, not as something you do for five or ten minutes in the morning and then you're off on your way. He has to be real and present each moment because He wants to be. He has to become your refuge. We have to practice what Psalm 63 says and cling to Him. Most critical scholars believe that Psalm 63 was written by David after this encounter. It says in the first few verses, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Took the jug of water, right? Mm. He needed nourishment. We need spiritual nourishment in our, in our wasteland. Our soul must thirst for Him, long for Him, as a deer pants for water in a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because of your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Doesn't have to have a sanctuary or a temple to do that. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, which he didn't have physically, but he had spiritually. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, not parched, dry, cracked lips without water, but lips that are full of the praise of our God. When I remember you upon my dead, my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Imagine the number of nights he spent laying in the wilderness, looking up at the sky. Maybe the stars are in the sky and he's worshiping God and he's meditating on God and said, when will this end? And yet I wait for you, O oh God, in the midst of running, hiding, hunger, thirst. I'm a king, but not yet. And he meditates on God's word, on his faithfulness, on his goodness. When you're in your difficulties, you got to meditate on his word. And in the night watches, let it soothe your heart and your soul. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of wings of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That type of relationship with God comes through time spent with Him. It may mean that your alarm needs to be set 20 minutes earlier. So you can sit before God before your day begins. It may mean that if you're a little bit shy in this kind of way like I am, I don't want to yell and scream in my house because there's other people there. You know, they might hear me screaming or crying out and they might bust in the room and wonder what's going on. Maybe you just need to get in your car, in your parking lot. Nobody's around. Windows are rolled up. And you just cry out to God. And you have a a gut-level, honest conversation with God. Let me tell you, he's not intimidated by that. He loves that. You have to find a way to get honest with God. Whatever that way looks like, you've got to find a way to do it and give him a chance to pour his life into you. David put God's word into his heart and meditated upon it during the night watches to help calm his heart during those times when the afflictions weighed heavily upon his soul. I've been there. Most of you, as I look across this crowd, most of you have been there. You may be there today. 
You have to draw close to Him and not miss what He's trying to share with you in your difficulties. Second suggestion, if you're taking notes, spend enough time with God and wrestle with God if you must to come to the place where you can say without reservation, you are God and I will do things your way. Many of you have heard uh, me or Cindy say during our journey with our son David that the way we survived losing our son to cancer has been in those moments of wrestling with God. I don't think any parent in the room would agree that cancer would be God's plan for your life or for your kids' lives, especially at the beginning. But during the whole process, the only place of peace that Cindy and I found was after we had poured out our hearts to God asking why and telling Him how much we didn't like it. We didn't like His plan. But I can tell you today with all confidence that our Abba Father did not turn away from us. Nor did He answer all of our questions. But He does continue to tell us that He loves us. That His plan for David was perfect. That his timing and plan for our family was perfect. And that we can trust him. We can crawl up in the lap of God and hide under his wing and tell him how angry we are. That's a safe place. He will not reject you. He will show you truth. We can crawl up into the lap of our Father and cry. With the windows up in a parking lot, you can crawl up into your Father's lap and just cry. That's okay. That's good. It's safe there. Just like you want your kids to run to you when they're hurting, God the Father wants us to run to Him and ask the silly questions of why and tell Him why we're angry about what He's doing. And He'll hold us and He will speak truth and run His hand over your head and the balm of His peace will be upon you. His mercy, His love, that persistent love and mercy brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can more fully depend upon Him. That's the point, isn't it? He wants us to completely and without doubt depend on Him and to trust Him. Know that God is at work on your behalf. You will see His deliverance and realize that through all of your difficulties that you have been made more into the image of His dear Son. Your life may be a mess on the outside. It may look like a hot mess. But God will redeem it. And out of the ashes, He will gain glory and will develop a spiritual depth within you that blesses all of the people you know and a lot of people you don't know. He will give you spiritual authority, spiritual depth that you never thought was possible. Redeeming your pain. He redeems your pain and deepens your faith and trust in Him. A song I've been listening to lately says it this way to God in the midst of difficulty. It says, don't stop the madness. Don't stop the chaos. Don't stop the pain inside of me. Oh man, sometimes I don't want to say that. I'm saying, hey, you got to stop dying here. But at the same time, don't stop the pain inside of me. Do whatever it takes to give me your heart and bring me down to my knees, Lord. What you going through? Where's the long-term pain, difficulty 
whatever it takes, He will do to help you surrender. He'll be gentle and yet persistent in His love for you. Psalm 34, 19 and 20 encourage us with God's sovereignty and redemptive heart and with this, I'm out of your hair. Verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The Lord redeems the life, redeems the life of His servants. And none of those who take refuge refuge in Him will be condemned. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.